Romans chapter 1. So I said it feels very good saying that. I love the holidays. I love the break that it gives mentally and being able to spend time with, uh, with, with one another. But um, I, I am just comfortable in consistent exposition, knowing what is coming next and just being taught verse by verse from God and, and His Word. There are many false notions uh, about heaven and, and hell, all based on human speculations. Uh, you have probably noticed many of them. There's the 15 minute of fame and even more in dollars from the people who claim to have been to heaven and returned and they, they write all about, all about it and for $19.99 you can read their book. Um, there the TV shows are commercials that, that uh, have a representation of, of God, typically an elderly gentleman who is usually nicely dressed, he's a little mysterious uh, but kind, surely not somebody to be afraid of. Heaven, in, in most of those scenarios, is pictured as your, your deepest desire fulfilled or your, your greatest dream granted. Uh, you want to be an NBA player, have a beautiful wife, and be rich in heaven? That's what you get. Um, it's the Disney princess version of heaven, where all your dreams come true. Or the Islamified virgin, uh, uh, version of heaven where you're married to 70 virgins for all e- eternity. And these views of, of heaven have nothing to do with Christ or God or finding your joy in Him. Um, it's all about you. It's all about your wants and your desires and, and your dreams. On the flip side of that, there are also human fantasies about the devil and, and hell. Um, the devil is often presented as a mischievous, seductive woman or some chiseled man. He's, he's very handsome. Um, and if you'll give him your soul, then he promises you everything that you could desire here in this life. Uh, rock star fame uh, or whatever it, it might be. And hell in those illusions is a place... Is viewed as a place where you leave, uh, relive your worst day over and, and over. Or, or you have to do some task that you really don't like for all eternity. Don't like doing the dishes? You'll have to do them every day over and over and over for all of eternity. Of course, the way the Bible describes heaven and hell is not even close to, to any of those descriptions. Hell's a place of outer darkness and solitary confinement with a tormenting flame forever and ever. Definitely something to fear. The worldly view of of hell is not something to fear. There are even those who who will say hell is is right here on earth, uh, some living condition that, that you're in. Or they'll say living with that man is like hell on earth, and I'll have to live with him for the rest of my life. And the Bible is abundantly clear in its description of both places, and you don't need any extra visions or a five-year-old with a marketing scheme uh, to teach you what it's like. But out of all of those perverted speculations that I just gave you, believe it or not, the last one, hell on earth, is the closest to the truth. 
Romans chapter 1 has been teaching us that mankind has rejected God and suppresses His mercy and His truth, and because of that, there is eternal wrath that is coming upon them. But Paul also says there is a foretaste of that wrath being offered to them right now on earth. And when you strip away all of the various descriptions in the Bible of God's wrath, it, it involves three things. It involves a separation from God, it involves an abandonment by God, and it, invo- it involves the active punishment of God. Of God. And that's what Paul is detailing for us in verses 24 through 32. It's nothing like eternal hell, what he describes here in chapter 1, which is far beyond anything that you could, you could, you could even think of. You have to have the Bible to describe it to you, or we'd deny it. But, but for sinners who reject God's revelation, he gives them a foretaste of wrath, a foretaste of hell, if you will. Foretaste of separation from God through a life without Him, outside of His fellowship, outside of the fellowship of His people, a a sample of abandonment by being turned over to your own selfish desires and being consumed by then and then bearing the natural consequences that that come from a life like that when you can't stop the sin that's that's destroying you. and, And all of that is a preview of active judgment. Romans 1, God's not just taking His hands off. He, he, he's actually fanning the flame, if you will, where He gives sinners over to their sin, immoral lusts and sexual perversions and a broken mind. Those are the three areas that Paul talks about here. But before we dive into that, let me, since it's been a while, let's push rewind and show you where we've been. You can just catch up. And if you haven't been with us through the first part of the book of Romans, this will bring you up to the verse that we're going to start with today, which is verse 28. Romans can be outlined in in eight parts. There's the the introduction to the gospel of God's righteousness. That's the theme of the book, the gospel of God's righteousness. Uh, So Paul introduces that in the first 17 verses, and then he starts in man's universal need. He gives the exclusive solution for the gospel in chapters 3 and 4, then the believer's assurance because of the gospel in chapter 5 through 8, and then the defense of the gospel in chapters 9 through 11, which is specifically geared toward Israel, and, and then there's the transforming power of the gospel, the, the chapter that you know well, or the verse you know well, chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. And he goes all the way through chapter 15 with, with that theme, and then there's the example of preaching of the gospel in chapter 15, and then the doxology, the praise to God because of the gospel in, in chapter 16. We've covered part one, which is Paul's introduction, and then we're a few verses into man's universal need, which is starts in verse 18 and goes all the way through chapter 3. And in verses 1 through 7, Paul introduces himself, and he introduces his, his message. He he tells them the message that he's been proclaiming and the message that he will proclaim if he comes to, to Rome. And then right after that introduction, Paul gives the, the reason that he's writing to them in verses 8 through 15. Paul says, I'm giving thanks uh, 
I'm giving thanks for you and I'm giving thanks that the gospel has come to Rome because that's an evidence that God's fulfilling His promise that He made in the, in the Old Testament that Gentiles would be part of the, part of the covenants, that Gentiles would, would receive salvation. And Paul says, I'm praying, I'm giving God thanks and I'm praying that I can come to you and be part of God's work in fulfilling His promise. In fact, I'm obligated to, to preach and I'm eager to preach this, this message. And he, he says that because of his theme. And that's found in verse 16. Look at verse 16, if you would. Paul says he's obligated and eager because I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God bringing salvation to all who believe. And in verse uh, 16, the end of it, and 17, this gospel is the saving power of God because God grants righteousness, the righteousness that we need through it. And that's revealed by faith, from faith to faith, beginning to end. And, and in verse 17, he says this truth is not new, just as it's found in the Old Testament. It's always been that way. Uh, it, righteousness has always come by, by faith. And with that transition, verses 16 and 17, Paul sends us into the, his second argument in, in Romans. The Apostle Paul is eager to preach the gospel because the message is urgently needed. In the beginning, uh, beginning in verse 18 through 23 and, or 32, Paul, uh, verses 18 through 32, Paul explains why the gospel is, is so needed. It's needed because... The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven and it's being revealed as a response to mankind's continual rejection of His Creator. Look, if you would, at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And since the beginning of the world... God has been revealing Himself to, to mankind. He's been doing that, but revealing Himself both in them, through their conscience and just an awareness of God. Anywhere you go in the world, there, there people, people know instinctively there's a right and a wrong. They, they may have different versions of what's right and what's wrong, but they know there's right and wrong, and, and they also know that, that there's a God. They're worshiping things. There's a knowledge of, of God in them, and and there's also a, a knowledge around them. So God's revealing himself through creation, Paul says. He says God's knowable, and his power and his nature are discernible, which renders everyone without an excuse, because they've rejected that witness. They've suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, in definable ways. Uh, mankind denies the witness of creation in verses 19 through 20. Man disrespects the worth of the Creator in verse 21. Uh, man devises worthless beliefs instead in verses 21 and 22. And man displaces the worship of God in verse 23. And, and Paul says God's response to that is not neutral. He's not passive. He's long-suffering, the Bible says. But he doesn't just stand back and let that happen. He expresses his wrath in the world and... He also stores it up in full strength for judgment that's coming in the end. And so Paul says all people of all walks of life are guilty of this rejection. 
The Gentiles suppress the truth in verses 19 through 32. The Jews do it in a different way in chapter 2 and 3. And then universally all people are, are under sin. That, that's Paul's argument, what he'll go over in this second, second half. He's eager to preach this gospel that he defined because it's needed. And it's needed in all three of these areas. And he's going to show us what? And we're in the section about God's condemnation of non-Jews, people like you and me, people that were not born with the law and the, and the covenants. We're in the section that applies to everyone that you see uh, around you in, in the world. And his wrath is revealed and His wrath is deserved. And now in verses 24 through 32, how that wrath is currently being poured out. So there's Paul's argument is there's the reality of God's wrath. There's the reasons for God's wrath, and then there's the results of it. What, what is happening in people, and what do you see in society that evidence, evidences the results of, uh, of God's wrath? And the structure hangs on these three very easy-to-see uh, menacing markers. God gave them over. He uses that three times in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, and Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. And then in verse 28, where we'll pick up today, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Each one of those uh, describes an expanding consequence of mankind's rejection of God and an expression of His active wrath. And instead of contemplating and uh, and appreciating the glory of their Creator and all that He has made. Human beings have rejected that splendor and turned to creative things uh, to worship and contemplate. And Paul says that idolatry is the source of all of the mess that you see in the world, all the immorality in the world. That's the source. And when mankind intentionally rejects God over and over and over and over, God gives them over to their own deeds and desires. And Paul says that's how his wrath is being manifested in the world right now. He gives people over to their moral lusts initially. The, he abandons them to unnatural passions secondly, and then finally their broken minds. A preacher said when you see a person or a society embrace sexual sin generally, homosexuality specifically, and reasoning that's irrational, it's a sure sign that God's patience has run out and He's turned them over to judgment. We are calling it three consequences of rejecting God. When you reject God, you're handed over to unclean desires, you're turned over to unnatural passions, and you're given over to unfit minds. We covered number one and number two before Christmas, and now we're, we're on point number three, and we'll finish this today. The last part begins in verse 28. God has given people who have rejected Him over to, to an unfit mind, to broken minds, and that leads to an increase of sin of all kinds. Look if you would at verse 28. He says, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. And he goes on for two verses, this list of sins. In verse 32, And although they knew the ordinance of God, 
that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. The, the third consequence of rejecting God is you're turned over to an unfit mind. And that's with broken reasoning and that leads to a barrage of wickedness and then that increases. It accelerates and it increases through a, a brazen approval. They give hearty approval. Paul's argument here. And he follows the same pattern as before. Notice in verse 28, he gives the reason for God's judgment. He wants to make sure that everyone knows this is not God's original desire. God is mercifully revealing himself and mankind is actively rejecting God. And because of that, God responds. That's, that's what he wants you to see here. For this reason, God gave them, them over. And then he gives the results. He says the result is a, a broken mind and then this barrage of, of wickedness. God says there are two results. He gives them over to counterfeit reasoning in verse 28 and an increase of, of all kinds of sin. He, he gives them over to a, a degradation of their minds and, and their consciences. That leads to a degradation of the family where disobedience and conflict reigns and interpersonal relationship. That leads to a degradation of society where, where no authority is respected. And then finally a cheering on of one another in, in sin. And that leads to increased corruption. You might think of it this way. I don't know if you've ever been to a theme park where there is a... Uh, you, you can ride those roadway cars. I'm not talking about the bumper cars, um, you know, that's kind of connected to the ceiling. Um, the ones that you're actually able to drive, you, you get in. You have to be a certain age to, to be able to drive them. And, and um, there's a track that you follow uh, around, but while you're driving them, you're able to, to, to steer the wheel. There, there's also a steel rail that, that follows the, the track, that rides between the axles of the cars. You know the cars, I'm, uh, the, the ride I'm talking about? They're there, so if you don't uh, drive properly, you, you, you hit the rail, you, you bounce off of it. It kind of acts like a, a rudder. It keeps you from going off course completely into the, into the goldfish pond or the statues of the hostile Indians or, or whatever it is. And Paul says you might think of life that way. God gives human beings volition. They, they are able to make choices. They're really driving the car. But God is also sovereign and kind, so he's built into this fallen world a, a steel rail of guiding graces. Uh, and these things act like that, that rail on that roadway course. And when an individual or society can't drive or, or they take their hands off the wheel or, or they intentionally steer off of God's intended track for life, those graces catch them. And it keeps them from wrecking completely. But Paul says when a person or a group of people, by their own choices and willful rejection, keep steering the car into the rail, keep crashing into it time after time after time, trying to jump its track, God eventually takes his hand off and removes the rail. And sinners are now able to steer wherever their lustful heart's desires and, and immoral yearnings uh, uh, want. And, and they steer into things much worse than a fish pond. 
They have no spiritual restraint in their hearts because, because they're lost. They're unregenerate. They have no spiritual life there. And, and now they have no natural restraints that, that, that hem them in. And that's exactly what you see happening all around you. Our culture has been slamming into God's guide rail for decades. And, and it's gotten to the point that, that God has removed some of that, that rail. John MacArthur said you can clearly see this by looking at the four common graces that God has designed into life. A common grace is something that, 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 that's common. It, it comes to everyone. It's, it's kind of baked into to life on the earth. It's baked into creation. It's, it, it's common to believers and unbelievers. And it, it's grace because God has done that for, uh, for us so we can flourish. And, and with those things that are absent, uh, if they're absent, they're, it's a curse. It's Bad things, bad things happen. Ecclesiastes told us that we live outside of the garden, right? I mean, the world is crooked. It cannot be, it cannot be fixed this side of heaven, which is why God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. But, but God is gracious, and He's not left us without a helpful order to keep everything from imploding. Uh, the weeds are there, but, but God's provided layers of landscaping fabric to, to keep them at bay. They want to eradicate the weeds. Uh, only the gospel can do that. Only a new heaven and a new earth will, will correct it completely. But, but you can operate in a, in a weedy world outside of the garden with a, with a measure of gracious blessing with, with these graces. And those graces are the conscience, the family, governing authorities in the church. The conscience, the family and all of its structures and the governing authorities and the, and the church. God has, has, has baked that in to, to life under the sun, life, life on the earth. Your conscience is that ability. A believer and an unbeliever has a conscience. It's your ability to sense your own guilt. It's a tremendous gift from God. It's, it provides the capacity to sense right and, and, and wrong and judge yourself. You might judge wrongly, but the capacity is there, even if you're an unbeliever. The family, uh, marriage provides the structure and basic training for, for, for life. I mean, God doesn't just take little humans and throw them out into the world. He, he gives, them a, gives them a boot camp, if you will, where, where you learn how to live well. And you learn authority from mom and dad. Or it's where you learn structure. You, you learn that mom and dad are different and they have different roles it's where you learn consequences, first learn consequences for your choices in, in a safe and loving environment by uh, discipline meted out by two people that care for you and love you because those consequences are coming in the world and those people that give you those consequences may not love you like mom and dad do. And you learn it hurts whenever you disobey. I learned it hurts whenever I disobeyed my mother. And then there are governing authorities, uh, also ordained by God to keep order. Romans 13 tells us that God's designed an authority structure above family, outside of family, this collective authority outside of your home. And its purpose is to punish evil and to reward good or promote good. It, it acts as an encourager of righteousness and a, and a retardant of, of sin. And the last thing that God's put in the world is the church. You know, the church, according to 1 Timothy 3, is, upholds the, the truth of, 
of God's word. It's salt. It's light in a, in a decaying world. It, it does that by proclaiming the word, by teaching the word, by disciplining itself through the word. The church proclaims to the world who God is and his glorious gospel so sinners can be forgiven and have, have eternal life. And all of those things, all four of those things, of those common graces, are not just being passively rejected by our society. They're being intentionally attacked. The world sees them as that steel rudder of God, and it's crashing into it over and over and over. Sigmund Freud in psychiatry has taken the batteries out of the conscience. You, you don't sin anymore. You're sick or you have a disorder. You shouldn't feel bad about anything. That's what the world tells you. Charles Darwin and his racist theories have destroyed the family. I mean, you don't need marriage and morality if you're nothing more than an animal and the world acts like animals. Postmodernism and Karl Marx have attacked authority. I mean, if the authorities of the world, the authorities uh, that God has established in the world are, uh, are the oppressors and you're the oppressed, then law and order must be rejected and destroyed and leaving nothing to restrain true evil. And the whole unbelieving world is against the church. It hates God's law. It hates the light of the gospel. And what Paul is describing here in Romans chapter 1 is how this happens and why this happens. Human beings that reject God are given over to a debased mind, which means counterfeit reason. Look at you at verse 28 again. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, here's the reason. They didn't see fit to approve God. Literally, they did not approve God. They evaluated God and didn't prove Him. It's the word that was used to describe what a metalsmith does when he's testing precious metals. He he would evaluate the metal to see whether it's good or not. They, they would test it and see if it's worthy. And Paul says that's what sinners are, are doing with God. They know He's there. He's given them a witness. And they evaluate Him and His witness, and they determine He is not worth their time. He's not worthy. That's what this word means. This is not an academic assessment uh, of God. Is there a greater creator? That's why people are, are fine being spiritual and talking about God but not the God of the Bible. This is not an academic assessment. This is a moral assessment of God. They don't evaluate the information. They consider God morally, and they reject Him. That's what Paul is saying here. They considered Him, and they did not accept Him. They genuinely assess Him like a, like a metalsmith does ore, and they, they do not find God worthy to keep. They test God. And they disapprove of him. That's the idea of this word. And what Paul says in this verse makes plain two things. Number one, it shows you how depraved human beings are to reject God even knowing he's there. And number two, it shows you once again that their ignorance... It's not ignorance, I should say, but it's a willful rejection, which is why they're without excuse. I mean, this word means that they look at God, they evaluate God, they think about God, they consider what they see and what they know, and they say, meh, I don't want it. 
And so sinners can't say in the judgment, oh, I didn't know or I didn't pay attention because this verse says they did know. And they drew a definite conclusion about God and they decided he was not worthy of their worship or obedience. And God is not passive in the face of that. God is still merciful because that's the world that Jesus Christ came to and laid down his life for to willingly save them. But God is not passive. He responds and the result is people who do that are turned over to worthless minds, broken reasoning. And they're turned over to increased sin. Verse 28 again. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. I mean, the second half of verse 28 gives the results of their rejection. The reason that God acts and then the results of their rejection. One writer said it this way, They disapproved of God, so God gives them a disapproved mind. You can't see it in the English, but Paul uses the same word here. They conclude God doesn't work, so God gives them minds that don't work. And when it's used this way, it's to declare a a metal valueless. It's, It's not worth anything. Just as they determine God's not worth anything, He gives them a mind that's not worth anything. God's given them a mind that's worthless for use. It's not fit to function. And the rest of the passage just shows exactly what he means, that it's not fit to to function. It's not fit to function in what way? Does that mean that they they just walk around like, uh, you know, buffoons? Their minds are worthless in determining good and evil. That's what he means. And so they're filled with all kinds of sin. Look at verse 28. God gave them over to this kind of mind to do those things which are not proper. So they have morally dysfunctional reasoning. Joel James said, The compass has no north. Having shot down the satellite of of God, their GPS always misdirects them. Have you ever had a a malfunctioning GPS? Have you ever been somewhere you have no idea where you're at? and you're dependent upon this little thing, and it's telling you turn right, and you're looking, and you know you're supposed to go left, or you get there, and it takes you around. Rerouting, rerouting. That, that's basically what, what the mind of sinners do. When they come in contact with good and evil, and making these moral choices, they're unable to know which way to go, and they can't use their moral compass to, to decide because they've been given over to a depraved mind. There, there's no moral north on their compass. The needle just spins. That's why when you look around and you see people making such illogical and devastating decisions, you you naturally ask yourself, what are you thinking? (laughs) Or how could you be so dumb to do that? Or or can't you see that this is going to destroy you? And the answer is no, they can't. You can see it because you have a mind that can function. And the biblical answer is no, they can't see it if they've rejected God. Listen, if you haven't thought about this, they just say it simply, sin is illogical, isn't it? I mean, sinners have illogical thinking. 
That's what Paul means here in verse 28 by, by improper conduct. To do those things which are not proper. It's a, it's a technical term denoting actions that are not fitting. It's, it's actions and, and things that are not fitting morally or logically. I mean, why would someone choose hell over heaven? Is that logical? A place of eternal flame versus a place of eternal joy. Why would you choose hell over heaven? I mean, why would they choose sexual sin over the blessing of intimate marriage? I mean, think about what sinners have to do that, that, that reject marriage. They have, to, they have to go out on the hunt and look for a partner over and over instead of having a lifelong lover laying in the bed beside them in, in covenant commitment. Not to mention that you know where that person that you're married to was last night and last year. I mean, does that make any sense? Does, I mean, when you actually think about what they do, does, does that make sense? Is that logical? Why would they choose addiction over self-control? Why would they choose to, to, to take a substance, whatever it might be, knowing that it's going to enslave them and bind them, and they would come back to that over and over and over, even if they lose their job, they, they, they lose money, they lose their family? Does, is that logical? Does that make any sense to you? Of course it doesn't. And you won't find any answer in logic uh, because it's illogical. And the reason that they do that is because once you reject God, you don't have any moral compass and your mind doesn't work well. That's also why you're not going to use logic to talk a sinner out of his sin. How do you reason with someone who has no moral capacity? You need the gospel to transform. That's the only hope that sinners have. If the gospel transforms them, if God does not transform them through the gospel, then, then there is no hope of, of salvation. But if it does, then they can see their choices in a proper light. So if sinners don't approve of God or, or proper things, I mean, what do they approve of? If they won't approve God, what do they find acceptable? Well, the answer is right in front of us. They, they approve of sin, and there's a list. It's the, this barrage of wickedness. Look, if you would, at verse 29. It says, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. There are 21 evils listed here. And this is a representative list. It's not all-inclusive. What, what do depraved people, sinful people, people that have not been born again, what... What do they approve of? If they disapprove of God, this is what they approve of. And there's a list of vices here. I don't think that there's any clear order. I've read a number of people who tried to make some order out of it. Uh, Doug Moo said there are three sections. But I mean, if you look at it, they're, they're vague. Others said there's like a rhyming pattern here. If you could read Greek and you read, read these in Greek, it, 
it, it, it, it rhymed like all ing words. If you know, in English, as an example, for a literary aid. I don't, I, maybe, I, I don't know. I think what's significant here, though, is all of these sins are related to, to social life. There are no sexual sins listed here. All the sexual sins are up front in the, in the, the lusts of the heart and then these, these, these immoral perversions that, that are there. And now he, he gets down into your, your interpersonal relationships and society in, in general. It, these sins affect people, the way they relate to one another, and the way they relate to, to each other collectively. You look at them. They're filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, uh, greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, and gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedience to parents, and without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. It's all the sins that, that affect those four areas that MacArthur talked about, frankly. The knowledge of right and wrong, they approve of, of not right and wrong, they approve of unrighteousness and wickedness, uh, interpersonal relationships and family that, that, that's built into life. They're disobedience to par- uh, disobedient to parents, they're without understanding, they're untrustworthy, they're unloving, they're unmerciful, they're gossips. God's authority in government and life. They're, they're haters of God. They're insolent. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They, they don't just like evil. They invent evil. The rejection of the truth, of the church, of the light. They're without understanding. They're untrustworthy. They're unloving. They're unmerciful. And Paul says this is what a society looks like that's rejected God. Look around you. You can see this in living color, can't you? This list is what will mark your life or the life of a person who's removed God from their mind. This is what you have to look forward to if you continue to reject Christ. It's a foretaste of hell on earth. Notice there's a thinking and action connection here. Uh, Once again, look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, they used their minds, they they drew the wrong conclusion about God, God gave them over to a depraved mind, there's their thinking, to do those things which are, are, are not proper. Being given over to broken reasoning, that leads to doing things that are that are not proper. You, if you think right, you, you do right. And if you do right, then you, you'll feel right. And then he gives this massive list of they're thinking wrong, so they're doing wrong. And notice verse 29. It says being filled with all unrighteousness. They're filled with these. Uh, pay attention to the adjectives here. They're full of envy in verse 29. They're inventors of, uh, of evil. Meaning that there, there's no restraint. The, their hearts and lives are, are overflowing with, with these types of, of sins. There's no restraint from God. There's no, there's no steel, steel rail anymore. And now there's no restraint of even moral reason or logic. And can't you see that into the world? 
I mean, people used to be ashamed of certain kinds of, of sins, but now they're not. They actually flaunt it. I mean, things that, that are not fitting to even be discussed, much less done, are uh, they now make TV shows about it. And I could name a few, but I won't. There's no restraint from God in the conscience, and, and without that, the man's heart is unleashed. And beyond that, there's no restraint of reason. I mean, even if someone doesn't believe in God or the God of the Bible or, or what the Bible says, uh, there's, certain, there's a certain level of, of, of logic or reasoning that that's, people can tell. There are things that are not helpful. They don't make sense. I mean, there's some easy ones that you can see. You just low-hanging fruit in, in our culture, uh, telling people not to feel bad about their personal choices. You forgive yourself, love yourself. Um, removing law enforcement or, 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 or police. Giving people money instead of making them work for it. I mean, you, could, you probably have your own list that just fires you up when you watch Fox News. I understand. I mean, saying education harms people like mathematics is racist. I mean, that's illogical, isn't it? I mean, men claiming to be many, uh, women, poking holes all over your body. I mean, these things are just illogical. They, they defy reason. It's not a matter of, well, if I, you know, if I, if I do that, am I going to hell? I mean, you, that, 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 that's illogical thinking. This depraved mind increases all these areas corporately like, like an accelerant. This depraved mind bonds and mixes with society and all of its ideas and immoral fascinations. It bonds with that, with the lust in the heart, and that, that, that increases the, the process, like shooting ether in, in, a, in a gasoline carburetor. And the broken mind without reason or righteousness increases all forms of sin, which is what he shows us next. God turns men over to their own sinful desires and he even gives oxygen to the flames. And that leads to all kinds of pain and difficulty and both are his judgments. Internally, there's no restraint, so you have no control over, over your passions. And externally, there are consequences for the sinful behaviors that, that they produce. And living in a culture like that is an expression of God's current wrath. I do not think that the average, I know this is, a, this is a general statement, but I don't think that the average American that's under 30 years of age actually knows the blessing of being raised or, or, or uh, living in an environment where, where, the, where, where the gospel and morality has, has created such blessings. I, it doesn't mean it saves them. But, it, but, but they, they haven't lived in a place where Hinduism reigns, where there's darkness, or communism reigns, godlessness reigns. I mean, those forms of government aren't, aren't a matter of saving or, or, or damning, but, but, but they're a residual effect of, of truth being at the center of, 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 of people, and then collectively, and, 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 then, and then that flourishing happens be, be, because of that. And so living in a culture that we're moving into is an expression of God's current wrath. 
And they not only do these things, they approve of other sinners. And that works to increase this collective sin, which is why it feels like you're on a bobsled to the bottom of, uh, of the hill. It's because there are fewer genuine Christians in the world. Look at verse 32. After he goes through the list, notice what else he says. He says, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And here's the, the brazen approval. It says they know all of these things are against God's ordinances, worthy of death. Death comes in life. They see death all around them, and, and yet they practice them anyway. Now, what does that mean? I mean, think about this. I mean, how can Paul earlier say that, that people have minds that don't work right, and then here he says that they know the ordinance of God. It seems like it's working well here. I mean... Is Paul contradicting himself? Paul's not contradicting himself. A sinner's total depravity, which is what Paul's describing here in Romans chapter 1, doesn't mean that you're as wicked as you could be or that you can't think intellectually, you can't make observations. It means that you're unable to draw good conclusions. You're unable to choose what is morally good. You can follow the logic Paul's laid out in this verse. They know all of these things, they reject all of these things, and they still continue to approve sin. He's saying the brokenness of their mind, again, is, is not intellectual, it's moral. The sinner's mind can know there is a God. The sinner's mind can still have a conscience, even if they try to silence it. They can tell there's a right and a, and a wrong. They... They can even see death all around them, but they sin anyway. And they can't help it. They can't stop. While they can tell there's a, there's a God and that death is real, they don't have any moral capacity or moral desire to turn. They, they justify, they blame shift, they sin in spite of what they see. That's what Paul means here. They have a disqualified mind. It's like what Paul will say in the universal condemnation. There's none that understand. There's none that seek after God. Why do they not understand? Why do they not seek after God? Because the revelation that he has already given them, they have rejected and they've been turned over under the curse and their depravity to this state. And unless God intervenes and gives them a new ability, they'll continue to do these very things and increase more and more all the way up into death. I mean, again, why would someone choose Jesus over sin and its lies? Because they've heard the witness of God, and they rejected Him, and the result is they have broken minds and broken wills. Everybody talks about human beings have a will, and they do. I described the car, right? Volition and choices. But what you don't understand you take that too far, is your will follows your desire. You do what you want to do. And the desire of unregenerate, unsafe people, the desires that I had before I was redeemed and born again, 
My will, my choices follow those desires and God must give you new desires and a new heart, which is why you must be born again, why you must be converted, why God must do a special work of grace in your heart or you are hopeless. And the reason that He can do that special work of grace is because Jesus Christ has come and died and shed His blood and rose from the dead. So they don't approve of God, but but they do approve of sins and they approve of others who do it. Look look at the end of verse 32. It says, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Andrew Murray said, "Uh, we're not only bent on damning ourselves, but we congratulate others in, in the doing of those things that we know have the have their issue in damnation. I mean, think of all the examples of this that you can see around you. I mean, people aren't just happy to commit sin. They want partners, don't they? I mean, they want people to do it with them. One preacher said the homosexual movement is a perfect example. They don't simply want equal protection. They want it normalized and taught in schools so other people will join them. And people don't party to drink alone. They want others to get drunk with them. People who gossip need someone to tell their titillating sinful details to. Immoral people want to engage in sexual sin with with others. End quote. It's just like what Proverbs Proverbs says, sinners run in packs, and they they want to do that. The same preacher said all of our entertainment is is a method to accomplish this. Movies and primetime sitcoms are nothing more than an hour-long expression of this verse. They're, they're an attempt to give hearty approval of sin, to sin. They give hearty approval of the wickedness by showing it to you over and over and over in order to normalize it. But why do they do that? Why do sinners want everyone to sin and others to, to sin? Well, why can't a sinner be satisfied just rejecting God and sinning themselves? themselves? Because if everyone is doing it, then it's a cultural norm. It's normal, and then it can't be wrong in their minds. That same preacher noted, Sigmund Freud said, men made up the idea of God to comfort them in a lonely universe, but no sinner ever made up the God of the Bible not the one that is just and sovereign and judges sin. Paul says that human beings create gods that fit their own desires, but but they don't create the God of the Bible. When they see His sovereignty and His justice and His judgment of sin, they say, say, no, not that one. I reject Him. I don't find Him worthy. I don't approve of that God. And God, in turn, doesn't approve of them. He gives them over to defiling defiling desires, degrading passions, and a depraved mind. And all of that is an active judgment. It's a foretaste, a little tiny foretaste, of what is coming in eternal wrath. Separation from God all that's good and abandonment by God and an active punishment. So, wow, I mean, plain as day. Knowing all that, what do we do? What do we do when we're in a society that's already here? 
Or, or maybe you have a loved one in this condition. You're listening to this and you see this plain as day. And I'm going over the list of the things that you done. I told them, yes, that's so illogical. Don't you know where that's going to lead you in life? What, what, what do you do if you have someone in this condition? I mean, how do you help your children that, that are not saved yet not to fall to this? I mean, this is what they're born in. Is there any hope for people or society like that? You know the answer. Remember Paul's torch that he gave us before we descended into this dark dungeon? It's shining brightly back in verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. The power of sin is great. The power of God is greater. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the torch that you need to light the dark corridor that you're walking through right now. It's the torch that you must use to protect yourself in a society that has no guardrails. And it's also the torch that you hold up in front of the, the little window with the bars in front of their, their dungeon door. And in the midst of their darkness and their squalor inside, then God draws their attention as we sing, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, the dungeon flames with light. And once God has their gaze, then they start moving closer to the door rather than away from the light and hating the light. They move closer to the light and the closer they get, the clearer things become of who God is and who they are and their sin and their need and their gospel. And then they, then they respond in repentance and faith. That's what you do. And for the church and your families, you hold out a biblical view of God. One that's sovereign, one that's just, one that judges, one that's compassionate. So people in your churches and in your families can approve the right God when they hear all of the counterfeits in the world. I'm afraid the vast majority of professing Christians don't know who God is. And the vast majorities vast majority of churches don't define Him. They want some of His attributes, but, but not the ones that infringe on their rights or their wills. What do you do in a society like this, with this kind of reality? You proclaim the gospel, the only thing that can free people. You live in such a way that your life reflects this kind of God in a pagan world, and you honor this kind of God with your love and in your life towards sinners that are close to you. You be faithful and consistent. And you teach the attributes of God to your children and teach them to answer all of their questions from the Bible. And then you rest. Trusting in this same God who is able to keep you from falling and preserve you until you see Him face to face. Preserve you faultless until you stand before His throne one day. When you realize that you live in this kind of world and you were in this kind of condition, the grace of God becomes sweeter and sweeter. And the promises, like He who began a good work in you, will perform it until the day, become sweeter 
and sweeter. I'm so thankful for God's sovereign grace, and I am so thankful for His keeping grace. It's the only hope we have. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And I love you because you first loved me. I can say those words not because I'm smarter. I'm the opposite. I was as dumb as they come, Lord. Choices and the sins that I I pursued. You as the, the perfect creator that I rejected over and over and over. Slamming the car of my life into that rudder. I am so thankful, Father. That you brought the wrecker of the gospel and pulled me out of my fish pond. That you put me back on track. And you actually gave me new life and a new desire. And the mind of Christ and and a mind that's able to be renewed, and a hunger and a love for your word. And Father, you will do that for anyone this morning. And all they do is repent and believe. And I pray they would. And I pray that you would help us as a church to be true to you as we live in this kind of society. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.